And I love the Hall of Faith because um, I'll note this at the end, but it only talks about all the good things, all the faith-filled things that men and women of faith did in the past. Um, and what you'll find is as you read this chapter, you'll read about people, hopefully, that if you have any biblical understanding about them at all, that they were faithful, and yet there's going to be a couple where you're going, how did they end up in the Hall of Faith? They, yeah, they were faithful in that area, but do you remember X, Y, and Z? Because we naturally, I don't know about you guys, but I know at work, they don't remember all the times I did something right. They remember like the one or two times that I did it wrong. And, and we're quick to judge our bosses like, how are they like that? But we're naturally like that. Uh, think about your children. Think about the way that you look at your own life. Sometimes we're our own worst critic, and I don't think that's always a bad thing. Um, but at the same time, sometimes people that know us don't remember that about us like we do. And what I want to point out is that God has this list of people pinned down in Hebrews chapter 11 that were still human beings. I think sometimes we think about people that are in the Bible as if they were untouchable and have never made mistakes. And, but if you've read the New Testament even, even at a cursory glance, look at the life of Peter. Jesus is not ashamed to call him his apostle, his disciple, and yet he was one of the most failure ridden guys I know and I can relate with him more than I can with somebody that it never mentions him sinning you know for instance Joseph who I know was a sinner because he trusted God and he was tempted with sin and yet in the Old Testament scriptures we don't get a whole lot of where he failed we see where he was a little prideful and was bragging to his brothers about how he's going to be a ruler over them one day um, but anyway look at people in the Bible not as perfect people but as real people. These aren't just stories. These aren't just fables. These are real people that lived, and they had the same limitations that you and I do. They only saw the first five feet in front of them, and then they didn't, see, they didn't know what was going to happen in their lives. And then God comes in and invades their space, speaks to them, and says, trust me. And I like what I saw on Facebook this week. Facebook has some redeeming qualities. It says there in the lower right-hand corner, sometimes faith will make you look stupid until it starts to rain. Do you know that Noah probably, by his tears, looked like an absolute fool? He looked like a fool. You're building a boat. What is a boat? To us, we know what it is, but it had never rained. And yet for a hundred years, he built this boat by hand, sweating and worn out. And his family's like, do we have to help you work on the boat today? And, and yet, when it was all said and done, they were all saved by the boat that made them look stupid. And so, in chapter 11, verse 1 through 3, we get the biblical definition of what we call faith. Faith is not shutting down your brain and just taking in everything and believing it. Belief has nothing to do with anything unless what you believe in is trustworthy. And so, he says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things that are not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. He says, by faith, we understand. Again, I point out to you that by faith, they understood. This is an intellectual word. By faith, we can know God. But many people see faith as something that's blind. And yet, I would submit to you that when we start to trust Jesus specifically as God, and as Savior, that's when our eyes are actually opened for the first time. And so by faith, 
we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. God is the only creator. When you look at all that we can see, God created it. Now, you and I create things, right? We go on Pinterest, we go on the internet, we look for instructions, or we've been taught by somebody to create things. But I would submit to you, we don't create anything. We only take things that already exist and make something. God creates something from nothing. Nothing. When he promises something, he says, I'm going to build you into this Abraham, into this family, and Abraham is not able to conceive and have children. So it's impossible. God calls us to believe impossible things, but if he says that and he promises it, then it can happen, and it will. God promises things that will happen. And so by faith, these elders obtain a good testimony, and by faith we understand. So he starts at creation and says we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen now were not made of things which are visible. And then he starts with the genealogy. And if you look at Genesis and you see the genealogy, it's not listing every person that ever existed. This was an exponential growth. What it's doing is it's following all the way from Genesis the line of God's seed through Abel, and, or excuse me, through Adam and Eve, all the way through to Jesus. Because we don't have any genealogies after Jesus. It stops. Matthew chapter 1 is the last genealogy in Scripture that we get about anybody. And it's not because God doesn't care about the rest of us. It's because all of history was coming to the culmination of God's promise in Genesis to provide a savior for Adam and Eve who were deceived by the serpent. And so we looked at Abel, who was a picture of faith worshiping. Abel offered a sacrifice that God would accept, the sacrifice of an animal. And we talked about why there was a precedent for that. Abel did it by faith, understanding that his parents had covering that God accepted by an animal skin. The fig leaves weren't sufficient. And so we see not only Abel, but then we see Cain offering a sacrifice that was not acceptable. And it's not like God said, well, I won't accept you at all. He said, I just won't accept this sacrifice. You need to make a proper one. And because Cain wouldn't, he ends up killing his brother in jealousy and anger. And then we have Enoch, who is an example of faith walking. Enoch, all we know about him is that he walked with God, and then he was not anymore because God took him. So he walked with God all the days of his life, and it says that he named his son Methuselah, which means after him, judgment shall come, and after Methuselah comes Noah, who is alive during the time of the worldwide flood. Now, um, I was talking with somebody after service last week about Noah, because there are many modern-day scholars that look at Scripture and they go, well, that wasn't a worldwide flood that's not even possible. But what I would submit to you is that the promise of God after the flood was this, I will never again flood the earth. So here's the question I have for you. Was he lying? Because we've had floods since then, right? We've had local floods. We've, just the last couple of days, we've had a, a flood warning. Does that mean that God's word's not true? And I would submit to you, he wasn't talking about local floods. He was talking about a worldwide flood. And so God's promise is true. So we have Noah is an example of faith working. And you might not think of that if you read the story, but 
I don't know about you guys, but I've seen the example of the boat in Kentucky. Um, but I've also seen that um, if he's building it for 100 years, I know that I build something for a week and I'm exhausted. So faith without works is dead. If he says, I believe in God, and yet doesn't do what God tells him to do, that's not faith. Believe. Believe in what you, what's the song from the, we've been watching the train movie. Believe in, yeah, Polar Express. It says, believe in what your heart tells you. Your heart is deceitfully wicked, be careful. Your heart is wrong. That's why God came to save us from our hearts, okay? Um, it's a good movie, don't get me wrong, but the message is kind of a lie from the pit of hell. I'm just saying, you know? So um, Noah's an example of believing what God said. Not believing what my heart says, but believing what God tells me to do, doing it, and then experiencing the fruit of my labor. That he was delivered. And so in 11, verse 8, we continue on, because I spent too much time on those three. We didn't get any further. But in verse 8, he continues on and he says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city, which is, has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And so we move on to the patriarchs, which start with Abraham. And then in verse 12, or excuse me, 11, he says, by faith, Sarah, which was his wife, herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, that's, that's Scripture's way of saying he was pretty old, he says, um, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. So we have this man by the name of Abraham that kind of comes out of this genealogy. He's a descendant of a man by the name of Terah. So if you turn with me to Genesis chapter 11, Hebrews 11, and then Genesis 11, and in verse 27, we have everyone's favorite type of scripture. We have genealogies. No one loves a genealogy unless their name's in it. We all hate genealogies, reading them in the Bible, but if our name was in there, we'd love it, right? That's why we got Ancestry.com. You can send your blood off. They can tell you that you're a mutt made out of like 18 different countries. No one actually knows where you're from. You're kind of a percentage of this and a percentage of that, but we're all Heinz 57 because that's America, right? Here we are. Sorry, I just always think that's funny. I'm glad you guys find it funny too. Sometimes people don't think that's funny. They're like, I already spent the 150 bucks. <laughs> it's cool don't get me wrong you know but uh anyway sorry uh, that's that's what's going on in my brain you guys are just seeing the glimpse of it okay in verse 27 he says this is the genealogy of terah terah begot abram nahor and haran haran begot lot and haran died before his father terah in his native land in ur of the chaldeans then abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, was the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarah was barren, 
He had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 250 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, so what we find out about Abraham is, number one, his wife could not conceive seed. She could not have a child. They were, they were barren. Sounds familiar to the Christmas story, right? There's this barrenness in John the Baptist's mom. There's this brokenness. And so I don't know, maybe I'm reading more into it, but just as a devotional thought, you ever wonder if maybe Abraham and Sarah were more open to hearing from the Lord because of their own inability to have a child, which they desperately wanted? I don't think that it would be in there had they not had that on the forefront of their mind. Now, that's not in Scripture. What I'm saying is just as a devotional thought, broken people are oftentimes more likely to be open to something outside of themselves and something outside of this world. So God found somebody that had ears to hear, and he spoke to them. Now, what we find out is that the reason that Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot and the son of Haran Haran and his daughter-in-law outside of where they were from is because we find out that God spoke to Abram. And in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, had said, it's past tense, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. Make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. He's blessed to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So look at this, verse 4. Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from, look at this, Haran. Now God told him while he was in Ur of the Chaldeans, that's when God revealed himself to Abram. But it says he departed from Haran. So I would submit to you, that during the time that he was called to leave his country, that God was actually patient with Abram because he was to obey then. And yet it seems like though he left his country, he did not leave his family. And I would submit to you that many people who hear from the voice of the Lord that he's called them to something different. God's called them to be other. He's called them to be holy, his people. And yet many times... um, what happens is they will leave their situation and they will become a child of God and yet they will suffer for years breaking away from traditions that are holding them back from following the Lord. That's a long way to say that they, you know, they, they have a hard time latching on to the family of God while at the same time they want to be obedient and then they always wonder why is it so hard to follow God and it's because we're trying to serve God and human, the fear of man. And so Abram is kind of latched to his dad, and his God has now called him to leave his family. And so finally, when his dad passes, that's when Abram is fully obedient. I would submit to you that partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. If God calls you to do something and you do it halfway, you're not actually doing it. And there's blessing in obedience. And so we get from Abram a picture of God being patient with Abram, not saying, hey, Abram, you got something to offer me. I need you. But saying, 
hey, here's what I'm called you to do, and yet he was patient with them. And so it says, then Abram, verse 5, took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and all the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abraham passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh. And the Canaanites were there in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. So there's a promise right there. I'm going to give this land to your descendants. Now, if you're Abram, you're going, well, what about me? I'm glad that you're giving it to them, but I'm here right now. So this is a step of faith to go, oh, okay, I received that promise. This promise is a wait promise. It's not no or yes, it's wait. And there he built an altar, though. He built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him, and he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still, toward the south. And so he's come into this land that God told him, leave your land and go to a place I'll show you. I don't know about you guys, but if I'm leaving on a journey... I want to know where I'm going so I can figure out the best route. But that's not what he does. Abram says, okay, I'll go where you want me to go. And he kind of reveals it to him as he goes. Many times we're looking for God to show us, what do you want to do? What are you trying to do in this situation? And many times what God's calling us to do is to keep taking steps and trust me along the way. Now that's not as easy as just knowing where you're going so then you can pick your way. God says, I want you to go where I'm telling you, and I'll show you the way. And there's a big difference there. And so Abram is a picture of this faith waiting. But what he does while he's waiting for this promise that he doesn't even really get promised that he gets to see the fulfillment of the promise is he waits and he obeys. God tells him, I'm going to do this thing. And he goes, cool. And he starts walking forward. That's all we're called to do as Christians. Take each step at a time you cannot it's like i said last week walking's not impressive to people we don't high five people for winning records at, at their walking skills but when we walk we arrive eventually and so walking for abraham looked like not only taking one step after another but also being open to the word of god still and then while he was open to the word of god waiting and obeying the word of god and i tell you what if you're taking steps of obedience they will be rewarded every time you say yes to god when he says do this it becomes easier the next time now the things he asks you to do many times become harder but it becomes easier to say yes because his past past excuse me his past faithfulness encourages us to trust him in the future and so here we have abram and then in genesis chapter 15 god makes abram a covenant promise and in those days, they would make promises, kings would. They would come together, and they would do this thing that we're getting ready to read about. It's kind of a creepy thing. We'll read it first, and then I'll explain it. Genesis 15. You love it when your pastor says that uh, what God says in his word is creepy, right? There's a quote for the day. Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid. Now, by the way, anytime it says in Scripture... Do not be afraid. God's telling them this because they are. 
It happened to the Apostle Paul. He was on a ship and he was praying, or he was at Corinth and he was in jail. And God comes to him by an angel and says, do not be afraid. It's because the Apostle Paul was afraid. And so in the same way, Abram was afraid. He says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. So not just your shield, not just your protector, but I am your reward. Many times we're looking for what God can give us, and he's given us himself. He's the reward. And so he says, but Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless? He just said, I'm giving you me. And we're always looking for something else. That's kind of our human nature, right? He says, I am seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. That was his servant. Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this one shall be, not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall be your descendants. And he believed in the Lord. And look at this. If you haven't underlined this, if you are a person that has a real Bible and you can underline it, or if you want to highlight it in your U version or whatever, underline this. He believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Abraham is accounted in Scripture as righteous because he believed what God said. And his belief was not just, hey, I believe. It was, I believe, and therefore I live. Does that make sense? So he believed God, and his belief in God caused him to take action. And so this happens. He makes this promise. I'm going to make you, I'm going to give you descendants. And then fast forward to Genesis. I have 16 for you. Because earlier in my study, I was going to go on this big harangue about Hagar and Ishmael. And if you've read about Abraham or Abram, you find out that Abram, after hearing the promise of God, his wife comes to him and he says, and she says, hey, I can't have a child. It's impossible. Now, Abram's already had the promise from God that she will have a child. And so he goes, okay, so what do you want me to do about it? Let's, let's fix it. That's what guys do. And so she looks at him and says, why don't you take my servant, Hagar, why don't you lay with her, and we'll produce a son. We'll help God out. Now, she didn't say that, but essentially that's what she's saying. We, we can do this. See, she was saturated with the ways of the world. She was from Egypt, and, and Abram knew that this was his wife, and yet what we find out is that I don't think hey, she actually wanted to give Hagar to her husband. She just wanted a child, and she wanted her husband to be happy, offered him something that he should have said no to. This was a test. Husbands, have you ever been tested by your wife? They don't necessarily mean to do it, but sometimes they do. They say things like, well, it doesn't really matter. Where are we going to go to eat? Right? That classic conversation, where do you want to go to eat? I don't care. Then you list 14 things. They're like, no, that doesn't sound great. You're like, so you do care. <laughs> you said you didn't care, but you care. And, and yet here we have, this is way more important. But he says, lay with my, she says, lay with my servant. And, and he says, well, okay, you know, and it's like, bad idea. And so, um, but what I want to point out is that God doesn't point that out in Hebrews 11. We are so quick to keep a list of our wrongs. But 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says that love keeps no record of wrongs. Now, here's the problem. 
we need to also keep in mind that our sins have consequences. Ishmael lives till today, and he is a wild man. He, is a, he, hates, he hates his brother Jacob. It's no longer just two people battling against one another for favor. It's now two nations that I believe will battle to the death in the culmination when Jesus comes back and sets it right in the Valley of Armageddon. And so at the same time, I, I, as I point out that God doesn't keep a record of wrong if we are in Christ, We've repented of our sin. We've been forgiven. And at the same time, our sins still have consequences that play, play out. And though we are forgiven of them, the consequences affect other people. And so the idea is not to be perfect, but at the same time to obey God in the simplest of ways and recognize that simple faithfulness and obedience will cause there to be less wreckage. And so um, in Genesis chapter 17, it says there, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. And then Abram fell on his face and God talked to him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. Abram humbles himself. If you're a person that feels like God talks to you and it never humbles you, then I don't think it's the voice of the Lord. Because when God speaks to me, when God speaks to people in Scripture, it causes them to be broken. To, not to recognize how good they are, but to recognize how broken they are. And they don't. Des- if you feel like you deserve God to speak to you, you don't know God. Because God is nothing like us. And yet he, he speaks to us. And, and, and he humbles himself and he says, My covenant is with you, God speaking to Abram, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. This doesn't mean that he's adding bacon as a side. You know, this is, sorry, I have to do the cheesy jokes. That's how it works. But Abraham, if you look at his name, it means father, but Abraham, father of nations. If you look in Old Testament scripture, you see the Hebrew word. Oh, what is it? I forgot what it was. I knew I should have wrote it down. But in the New Testament, it's pneuma. And in the Old Testament, it, it, the vowel made this sound. And it's where in Genesis, God reasoned Adam, the breath of life, the word for breathe is, there it is, rhema. Rhema. And, and in that, we have Abraham. So you insert the breath of life into Abram, who was as good as dead at 99 years old, and you get descendants. You take Sarai, who has no breath of God in her. She's barren, unable to have children. And then you breathe in the Ramah into her name, Sarah. And you get the breath of life, which makes her fruitful. He says, no longer will you be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So he continues and says, And God said to Abraham, 
Now he's now lo- no longer calling him Abram, but Abraham. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall, must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. So then zoom down to verse 15, and it says, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. So, okay, you didn't get it last time when I made the promise, Abraham. So specifically, it's going to be through your wife. I'm going to change your name. So Abraham fell on his face, and he laughed, and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Why don't you just accept what I've already produced? Isn't that like us? God, I know what you promised, but why don't you, it'd just be easier if you just accept what we've already done. You know, let's just stamp your approval on what I've already done in my life, Lord, and then we'll move forward. And what God says is, uh, <laughs> no. No. Even God tells his children, no. He says, no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Isaac means laughter. God wanted them to remember the response that they had when he promised. They didn't respond. They go, oh, God, you're so good. This is going to be awesome. They laughed at him. They thought it was silly. I think there was... But later, what we see is when they have this son of promise, Isaac, they laugh for joy. Not out of silliness and thinking that what God promised is impossible, but now going, <laughs> hilariously going, oh my gosh, we didn't think this could happen. And here we are, we have this child that God promised. And so I want to submit to you that Abraham waited 25 years for this promise to be fulfilled. He was 75 when he left Haran. At that point, God promises him, I'm going to give you a child. I'm going to give it to you through your wife, Sarai. And then Sarah and Abraham have this child. How many times have you waited 25 years for God to fulfill a promise? How many times have you waited a week? How many times have you waited a day? If you're frustrated because you feel like God's let you down on his promise, let me submit to you that God does not work in our timing but he is always faithful. And so we move on to Genesis chapter 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. God says something to you, he will do it. He will do what he has spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, and at the set time of which God had spoken to him, 
Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him. They're very specific there, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old. Why eight days old? Well, we don't know in the Old Testament. What we find out later, because of modern medicine, is that on the eighth day, your body produces enough antibodies, and I think it's potassium or vitamin K. Vitamin K, which is potassium, and now your blood can coagulate, and you won't bleed out. So God, in his foreknowledge of how he has built us, knew that at eight days it would be safe to circumcise the child and be obedient. So they wait eight days, they circumcise the child, no complications. And verse 5 says, Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse the children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. And so faith waits on God. By faith, they obeyed, and they received promise. That's the story. Waiting is a four-letter word, but it's a good four-letter word. But I also want to point out that faith and waiting doesn't mean we don't do anything. Many people scoff at Christianity. They go, well, we'll, we'll just wait for God to work. We'll just pray about it. Faith does pray. Faith does listen. But faith does also move. And we need to take step of obedience in the middle of our waiting. Even though God hasn't given us what we want so desperately, we have to obey in the waiting. Because when we will obey, our waiting and our obedience will lead forth and will arrive at the destination he has set forth before us. So, back in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, he talks about Abel. So there's Abel, there's Enoch, there's, wait, I gotta go back, because I remember, Abel, Enoch, Noah, and then we have Abraham and Sarai, and he speaks about Jacob and Esau, he speaks about the descendants, but what we find out is that um, in verse 13, he speaks about all these people, and he says, these all died in faith. They did not receive the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them. They embraced them. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So in verse 13 through 16, we see that faith believes God. But what I want to point out is that they died. They still died. Following God means eternal life, but they still died. They died, but their testimony did not. What they had done believing God, we're still reading about it. Thousands of years later, we're reading about what they did. And I don't know about you, but it inspires me. Faith does not always obtain in this life. Remember, I talked to you about how God had told him, I'm going to give this land, the Canaanite land, the land that we now see as Israel as a nation with Jerusalem and all the countries. I've been there. It's, it's exactly what the Bible says. This is a land that exists till today. And yet what we find out is that Abraham never set foot in it as a nation called after his name. 
he actually gets promised by God that your descendants will go into captivity for 400 years and then they will be brought out by a deliverer and brought into the land and they will conquer it. So I don't know about you guys, but if somebody tells me something that far in the future, I can have two responses. Go, doesn't affect me. Or I can respond and say, let's get there now. Let's force the hand of God. Let's rush forward. And what faith does is it waits. It just believes. So faith does not always obtain in this life. Faith makes you an outsider in this world. It'll make you look dumb. That's okay. I look dumb most days anyway. I don't know about you guys. I look dumb. I do dumb things. But I would rather look dumb trusting in the promises of God than trusting in myself. Um, Faith looks past the impossible to see the God possible. Faith lives for then while at the same time living now. Faith doesn't look back longingly on the past. There's a verse in there that says, Truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out of, they would have had opportunity to return. Abram's no different than us. How many of us love our hometown, whether we live there or not? Me too. I'm a farm town boy. I, I grew up in Farmington. You know, you can call it steak and shrimp land, you can call it, you know, whatever, and we all have to go there for groceries a lot. Sometimes we don't, sometimes we stick around. But my point is that we all love where we come from because it's kind of where we get some of our identity. And if Abram and Sarah had got fed up with the promises of God, God not being fulfilled, they could have easily thought, you know, it was way better where we used to live. Let's go back there. And they, they had that opportunity. They had free will like the rest of us. And yet what it says about them is that they did not. They stayed. But now, verse 16, as they've been living for the promises of God, they've been living in a place where they didn't own. They didn't own property. They didn't live the American dream. They lived in tents. I have for you in the back there a picture of a modern-day Bedouin family. They lived in a tent. They were sheep herders. They don't own land. People like that still live in Israel today. And many people would say, well, man, that stinks. They don't own anything. No, but at the same time, anytime they want to move, they can. You know, I'd like to live at the mountains today. Now, they're going to have to walk there. Don't get me wrong. But they can go live in the mountains. They're kind of more free than we are. But Abram and Sarah weren't living for comfort today. They were living for the promise of being in the presence of God forever. So faith doesn't look back longingly on the past. And I've been guilty of this in the past. I've looked back longingly. I'm no different. There are things that I used to do and not even have to think about. Faith's hard. But the life that we live now by faith is only a vapor in the, in the span of eternity. Faith is visible in what you live for, not what you live in. If you're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, and you're trusting the promises of God, and yet you don't have what the next-door neighbor has, or you don't have what the other family does. The grass is always greener on the other side, but faith is visible in what you live for, what you're looking for. If you're looking for a city whose builder and maker, whose foundations are made by God, you may not have all that this world says you need to have. But there are needs and wants. So, while you wait, I would encourage you to worship with abandon. Verse 17. God promised Abraham the son. And then what it says in verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, 
offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Let's not go there yet. So in verse 17 through 20, we have this pointing back to Scripture in Genesis 22. And we'll tell this story and then we'll close. So back in Genesis, chapter 21, he's received this son. You ever prayed for something so long and then you finally receive it? And it's just the biggest blessing because you can, you can enjoy it so much more when you've asked for it. And yet what we find is that God, after giving this blessing, giving this gift to Abraham, after he's given it, God asks for it back. God wants to find out if Abraham's going to worship the gift or the gift giver. How many times have you prayed for something and then find out, well, that didn't make me happy, as happy as I thought it would? And then it, you kind of get this sickness, this destination sickness. You know, I don't know about you guys, but as a kid, when I was growing up, I always had the one big thing I really wanted. And my parents always kind of obliged. I mean, there, for, compared to a lot of people, like, they would just give it to us. And I was really blessed by it. And I'd want it. And I was so excited about it. And sometimes I'd find it a little early. Of course, that ruins the gift, by the way. I don't know about you guys. I don't like to peek anymore because that ruined it. I was like, this is an amazing guitar I saw a month ago. <sighs> I already knew I was getting it. You know, there's no surprise. But anyway, um, God promised this son, Abraham received it, and many of us have prayed for children or prayed for others who can't have children, and then we receive them, and we're so apt to worship our children instead of God. Worship them as, as a gift, but at the same time, start to worship the gift, and then it never makes us happy, and then we're mad at the gift. And in the meantime, if we would have worshiped God who gave the gift, then we can properly enjoy the gift, put it in its proper place, and then actually lead that gift to know him. And so Genesis 22, it says, It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, Abraham said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. This is the first time that this word love is in Scripture. There's a rule of first mention in Scripture. Anytime a theme is mentioned, it points to Jesus. Well, it says, whom you love. And the word love hasn't come up yet in Scripture. This is the first time, and I would submit to you, it's because God's pointing to his son through the passage. So he says, offer up your son, your only son. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So just so you know, there's no ambiguity here. God's calling Abraham to literally burn his son. I have a problem with that. It seems like against the, even the laws of God, the basic, you shall not make death happen. You shall not murder. So what's the, it'd be very easy for Abraham to go, wow, whoa, wait a minute. Are, is this the voice of God or did I have a bad burrito? What's going on? And what happens is that Abraham doesn't do any of that. He became so familiar with the voice of God that he just obeyed it when he heard it. When he heard God speak, he did. He moved. He obeyed. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place of which God had told him. 
Now, on the third day of travel, the whole time, no doubt, he's mourning the death of his son before it's even happened. Abraham lifted his eyes, saw the place afar off. Abraham said to his young son, excuse me, young men, stay here with the donkey and the lad, and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on, the, on it, Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Worship was a lifestyle for them. So the son understood sacrifice. He understood the murder of an animal for the forgiveness. This was nothing new. This wasn't the first time he took him to church. But what happened is as they're going up the hill, he goes, I get what we're doing here, but where's the animal? And what Abraham says is God will offer himself the sacrifice. He'll offer it himself. And so they go up the hill. Abraham, no doubt, still grieving his son. So we go on. Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. So the story goes, they go all the way up on the mountain. They, they, they prepare the altar. He builds it out of stone. He lays his son on top of the wood. And what they would do with the lamb is they would slit its throat, let it bleed out, and then they would burn the offering. They cut all the right pieces off. So his son is literally allowing his father to tie him down. Perfect submission. Perfect submission. All is at rest. We sing it, but I mean, that's, it's a gruesome thing. He's bound. He's tied. He's laid on a fireplace, if you will. And then as he's raising the knife, getting ready to slit his son's throat, God says, stop, Abraham. And as he does this, he lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him, verse 13, was a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns, by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram, offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So he gave up his son willingly. So I would submit to you and I would ask you this question. Has God ever asked you to give up your children? In a way, he has. You know, He's asked you to worship him and him only. So Abraham waited for the son, and then he had to give the son back, not because he had to, but it was an offering of worship to God. And what we find out is that later what, what God says to Abraham, it says, because I know you trust me, because you offered up your son, you gave him back to me willingly, I'm going to die for you guys. I'm going to send my son. He found faithfulness. He found trust in the people. And then he sent his son to die for us. We get a promise to Abraham that's not really to Abraham. It's actually to all of Abraham's descendants. So, whatever God gives you, give it back. God gives you something, give it back to him. Lord, you've given me this for a reason. How do you want me to use it? Watch and listen constantly for further instruction. Hope only in what God has promised. Don't get distracted. Trust God's instructions, even if it doesn't make sense. It will later. 
Obedience always leads to blessing, not just for you, but for others. Obedience also is sometimes hearing the wrong voice, making mistakes, and then keep going. As we continue through Hebrews 11, we're going to find out that these people weren't perfect. But we're going to find out.